America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend, Veris Age Institute colleague and co-host, Ed Klass. And Ed, on today's show, we are absolutely honored to have Dr. Reed Holden, who's the founder uh, of Holden Advisors. He's a world-class pricing expert who helps clients build go-to-market strategies to drive price leadership, selling backbone, and profitable growth. And I've known Reed probably since around 1999 or 2000 when I first met him at the uh, Professional Pricing Society. He's had a profound impact on me and, and my pricing knowledge, and I consider him a mentor. So welcome, Reed, to the show. We're thrilled to have you. Uh, thanks, Ron and Ed. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Reed, uh, before we start getting into your books, and I'm sure we're going to get into some very interesting pricing topics, which our, our listeners love, uh, you know, most of us think that the hint that his, that history starts the day one. And so, when I when I encounter you, when I encountered Tom Nagel for the first time, and and maybe Bob Cross and some other legends in pricing, I kind of look to you guys as the legends in pricing. So, I guess my first question is, who are your mentors? Who taught you pricing? Um, well, there were there were two primary people. Um, uh, the first one was my first business partner and my first uh, pricing professor, who was uh, Tom Nagel. Um, I was a, a, a student at Boston University, and Tom had come there to teach, and um, he I took the class, um, ended up uh, writing the teacher's manual that summer because I was a hungry graduate student looking for money. Um, we decided to go into business together, and I guess the rest was history. But, you know, Tom is the guy who initially uh, showed me all the pricing issues, uh, taught me how to learn uh, things properly. He was the chair of my uh, dissertation committee, and, um, you know, I have a huge amount of respect for what he's done to the field. Um, another one is a 92-year-old gentleman by the name of Dan Nimer, who is generally acknowledged as being the father of uh, value-based pricing, uh, still alive and kicking in Chicago, and he's uh, not only a mentor but been a great friend over the years. And and read you just you've written a book in tribute to him, right? It's kind of a compendium of different authors. Um, I didn't. It it, it was uh, not written by me. Um, I was part of the original group that put it together. It was edited by uh, Tom Nagel. Uh, excuse me. Mm-hmm. It was edited by um, uh, Jerry Smith of, who was uh, chair of the marketing department at Boston College. Um, Tom Nagel has an article in it. Uh, Mick Colossa has an article in it. Gene Zellick, uh, attorney in Chicago, has an article in it. But it's a compendium of articles from uh, people in the uh, pricing arena. Right. Okay. 
And of course, you wrote with Tom Nagel the strategy and tactics of pricing second and third editions, first, yep. second, third editions, I would imagine. No, the second and third edition. Tom uh, did the first edition on his own. Oh, okay. Okay. And I know that that book is an absolute classic. It's on every pricer's bookshelf. Uh, I tell everybody, you've got to get this book. It is the the single best single volume book ever written on pricing, I think. I'm not sure if I'd agree with that, but it's uh, <laughs> certainly a nice thought. <laughs> well, only only I say that because when I first read it, and I read it read in October of 1998, so this mm-hmm. would have been three months after my first book on pricing was published in July of 98, and the thing that just bended my mind and, you know, like Oliver, as Justice Holmes said, that once your mind uh, bends to a new idea, it can never go back to its original shape. It, it's when you put that difference between cost-based pricing chain and value-based pricing chain. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the product cost, price, value, customer and cost plus pricing. And it's the exact opposite for value based. And mm-hmm. I'll tell you, that just blew my mind. And I know I've asked you this before, but where did that come from? Where did you first see that? Or is that something that you and Tom developed? Well, I actually think it was developed um, uh, um, uh, even before Tom at University of Chicago. Um, if there are um, uh, two or three uh, academics who came out of the University of Chicago, there was a uh, program that had been developed there over the years, and um, uh, Tom picked up uh, the program and... Um, was able to um, write a book about it. So I think it came from that program, uh, which is, you know, Tom, another um, uh, person to look at is Bob Dolan at Harvard University. Uh, He wrote a book with Herman Simon called Power Pricing that I think is a terrific book as well. And, um, you know, if you look at Bob's writings uh, in that book or in uh, the Harvard Business Review, you know, he has the same reflection in what he's written. Henry, right. this is this this is Ed here. You know it, what? What unfortunately I, I think has happened, and this is as a guy who works for a software company who sells a lot of systems. That uh, b- because cost based pricing is a easy formula, mm-hmm. we then we, we then build it into software systems and then hand it out to people, and they think, oh well, this is I guess how you do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and of course, the reality is, is that it, as you point out, it's the exact opposite. And I, I too share that you know that. This that that chain just really makes people's eyes explode once they they realize that, especially the cost accountants who usually end up on a you know pile of their own jelly on the side. They just can't take it. <laughs> well, I can't. You know, Ron used to be an accountant, and I suppose he, once you're an accountant, you you always are. And I can't picture Ron doing that. So, <laughs> but it, it, it's an interesting transition. And, you know, if I look at, you know, when Tom first wrote that book in the first edition back in the um, uh, early 1990s, I mean, he really, it, it, it's a battle that here we are, you know, 22, 23 years later, still fighting it. And, you know, we as an, we as an industry are still struggling to have, you know, better understand what value is. Uh, you know, there, there are tremendous disagreements on how to measure it. 
and um, and you know once you measure it, what to do with it. And it's um, it's been a fascinating journey. But it, I, I believe that a lot of companies still use cost-based pricing. And you know it's funny Ed, you mentioned the software business. You know the problem is that the incremental cost of producing a you know an additional seat in software is uh, you know pretty much zero. You know, which is why a lot of the software companies have struggled with discounting. You know, you look at uh, PeopleSoft that went out of business maybe 10 years ago um, um, when when they ran into problems and were eventually purchased by, okay, Ed, who purchased PeopleSoft? Uh, yeah, I, I want to say it was might have been SAP ultimately. It might have been. I want to. It might have been. At any rate, you know, they there was a big court case in California when that was going on. In four, in four, in four. It okay, was in four, good. definitely. You. <laughs> You're the software guy. I'm not the software guy. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but they had a, you know, they had a big court case to try to prevent that, and um, you know, the the the. Uh, testimony that was coming out in the trial were that you know it's not at all unusual in the software business, especially the enterprise software business, to offer discounts as much as ninety to ninety-five percent to close business. And the big software companies were making all their money on um, uh, maintenance fees and training fees and things like that. It's just fascinating. Right. Well, now it, it, at at Sage, even and many of the software companies in the mid market, we're all in this transitionary phase away, away from you know module and seat yep. and seat based over to to software as a service, which yep. you know th- a, as a model. But then it's really subscription based pricing, which is what 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 is is driving that. I mean, it wasn't the technology that say Salesforce had; it was the new pricing model. Right. And, and if you think it, that is an evolution towards more of a value based approach. Because it's it, you're, the the clients are paying based on how they are using the software rather than you know per seat. Yeah, it, no, and it's 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 really great, and uh, I think long term um, it it, uh, it it is going to be beneficial for all people concerned, not only customers but also the providers, and then the folks that I work with, which is the partner organizations, those intermediaries as well. That the challenges is what, and maybe maybe you do have an answer for this, and I'll bring it back. The, the 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 whatever it is the twelve to eighteen month transition oh. sucks. <laughs> oh. well, you know, you know, we have worked through a number of software companies in that process, and our general conclusion is the best time to make the transition from uh, um, from uh, the, the old model to the new software as a service model is when you are absolutely in the middle of a, a tremendous recession. You know, orders are down. And you know you don't have money coming in anyway, so you might as well make that transition. Um, th- that was our conclusion. <laughs> I'll bring that back. All right, I got a strategy, guys. We got to wait for the next recession. <laughs> I'm going to be very popular. <laughs> but you know, uh, you t- really t- have taught me so much, uh, both directly and through Ron, on this whole idea of discounting. I've become a zealot, Reed. I mean, I I hate. The word discount, mostly because I find that it's it's wrongly used, right? When when there, there is a difference, isn't there, between a discount and say a promotional price or a preferred price? And it's I think so much better to call it those things when it's not really just this unilateral discount just because the position of the earth is here. <laughs> well, you know, I get accused, accused of being anti-semantic all the time, uh, you know, but. <laughs> Yeah, you know it's, it's, the question. The question is whether or not the discount is part of a strategy. For example, you're dealing with a very big customer; they get a bigger discount. Um, when you do a 
price plot. I mean, this is a, I know you have a lot of medium to small businesses out there, and, you know, they probably lust after all these fancy services the big companies can buy, but, you know, you get back to basics, and you just do a price plot. You, you know, take a product, take a service, take anything, and do a plot relative to either the size of the customer or the amount of business they give you, and it's going to look like a random distribution. And, you know, you've got, you, you got big companies that are paying a lot of money and you've got little companies that are paying very little money only because they're able to convince a salesperson or a sales executive or a senior executive um, that, you know, that they aren't going to buy unless they get this big discount. And my problem is with random discounting or uncontrolled discounting or unstrategic discounting that comes only because customers um, uh, negotiate better. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, but if you ask most salespeople, they'll say every discount is a strategic discount because it's the, the strategy to close this deal. Well, that's what they're paid to do. You right. <laughs> most salespeople, most salespeople are compensated on revenue, not on profitability, and that's one of the reasons they do what they do. And you yeah. know, we even see companies, you know, today that um, have started moving down the path to better pricing, uh, both tactics and strategy. And you know they'll so they 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 use this value mantra with salespeople and the you know the salespeople have a pretty good if I can use the word BS detector and you know they hear this word coming and they know at the end of the period uh, at the end of the quarter the end of the month that a senior executive is going to jump in there and close a deal based on price and 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 that that and and customers know that. That's why they delay. That's why they try to get the senior executives to the table, and it, it's all you know part of this this word that you don't like the poker playing that procurement people do to get lower prices. That kind of stuff is bad for organizations. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Reed. We're going to come back, folks, after this break and have more discussions with Reed about pricing topics and then get into some of his books that he's written. Uh, in the meantime, you can contact Ed or myself at TSOE at Verisage.com, and you can follow our uh, show on Verisage.com slash TSOE. We will be posting show notes on this uh, with a link to all of Reed's books and also his fantastic newsletter that he puts out from the Holden Advisors, which is uh, just a little short articles on pricing and their analysis, and Reed usually does a couple book reviews. It's a tool that everybody uh, in our audience should subscribe to. Uh, But first, we want to take a, a listen to our sponsor, Leading Results. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You've experienced it. Marketing and selling has changed dramatically in the last few years. The search engine has completely altered the way customers buy. Your clients are now driving the process their way. At Leading Results, we know how to work with this. We don't just jump in and start doing. Together, we plan your marketing strategy. Install a website that gets results and create lead generation programs that drive sales. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more and to schedule a 30-minute conversation with us. 
Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CIO Talk Radio, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experiences with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive. This means better care for customers and improves the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel, the bottom line in business talk. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. are tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit verisage.com you may also tweet us at verisage that's v-e-r-a-s-a-g-e now back to the soul of enterprise hey folks if you want to live tweet with us along with the show make sure to use the hashtag pound t-s-o-e out on Twitter, and we do monitor that during the show. So if you have a question for us or for our guest, Reed Holden, uh, we hope that you'll uh, tweet away. Uh, Reed, I have uh, came across something, and, and you, <laughs> I love the, the anti-Semantic line. That's hysterical. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I, I'm, I'm probably the exact opposite. I am Mr. Semantic. My, my dad was a Latin teacher uh, part, part-time, so I, I have like this, this – uh, overabundance of uh, belief about words and their importance. I'm fighting a battle right now between the uh, use of using on-premise versus on-premises <laughs> inside my organization. Uh, on-premise doesn't mean anything to me. But yep. um, but the one that I wanted to ask you about is the, is the use of the term fair in fair price. We hear this all of the time. A price must be considered to be a fair price. Is that fair? And there was a a post done by a, a behavioral economist, uh, I think with Reason Ma- um, with Reason Magazine, uh, and I've got to—I'll I'll re- remember the guy's name as I'm telling this story. But he he said that there, that fair, interestingly enough, is an Anglo-Saxon concept, right? There's there is no uh, equivalent of the word fair in any of the Romance languages, and I I tested this. Uh, we, Ron and I were up uh, teaching something in Canada, and we had a, 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 about 10% of the folks there were, were French-speaking. And I asked them to translate the word fair into French. And what they came back with was juste or, or just, right? Mm-hmm. And then they, I said, okay, well, if you translate that back to English, what would it be? And they said, it wouldn't be fair. It would be just, <laughs> right? And I said, well, but fair and just are two different ideas, aren't they? Right? Like a just price, we wouldn't say that it, there would be an unjust price, right? That would just sound harsh, right? But we do use this fair all the time. And actually, the opposite of fair is foul. And we would never say a foul price, right? So I think what people I've mean with few, I've seen a few fall prices. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Really, with where you mostly where you left money on the table. My point being uh, in this whole the, this whole setup is that when when we think about fair price, we really it, it really means a just price. And a just price back in the day when they talked about just price just meant one that you were willing to pay. So isn't almost any price that you are willing to pay by definition fair? No. Okay. Yeah. I, I think it would 
be a little careful of this. Um, uh, we started using, so in the strategy and tactics of pricing, we started using the fairness effect in the second edition. Um, and it was an attempt to begin to get a, just a little bit better psychological mechanism into how th- people think of price. And just because people pay the price doesn't mean they think it's fair. And, you know, you, we buy things all the time that um, after we purchase them, we know we've been ripped off. Um, you know, you go to a sports game and you pay, a, you know, we're paying $150, $200 a ticket in Boston. And you know, that does not strike me as being fair. Um, you know, you hire, uh, I mean, I just had to hire someone to come in and uh, replace a, um, a, a fix an ice maker, right? Simple thing, right? And um, it ended up costing me more than $250 just to replace a valve on this ice maker. Now, I paid it because I wanted to get the ice maker working, but I know I got ripped off in the process because it was an expensive refrigerator. Um, You know, just because you pay it does not mean it's fair. Well, and I would argue, didn't you? But didn't you have a choice not to, though? Yeah, I could have gone without the ice maker. Right, and therefore you said, "Well, it's, probably, it's worth the two fifty for me to do it." Uh, yes, it is worth the two fifty for me to do it, but I did not think the pricing was fair. Hmm. Okay. Well, now, like I, there, there are some prices that I certainly object to, and mm-hmm. but, but I think, but usually the ones that that get me are the ones where they're trying to. It's funny they're trying to justify their costs. Right when 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 airlines tell me about fuel fuel surcharges and <laughs> all of this stuff, or you know, they, or people who and I've seen this in restaurants. I don't know about you. Well, you know, the price of of wheat or sugar has gone up, so we have to increase our prices. Like like, why is that my problem? Right? Well, but it, but what they're trying to do is they're trying to mean the the, the basis of fairness uh, rests not only on what you're paying but also on how organizations try to change the way you think about that payment. And uh, there's a, a, a technique called framing that um, a, a good, you know, smart people will try to frame their price as being fair based on other things that might be outside of their control. And, you know, and costs is a, is a, is a good example. Um, you know, you've, you've got to look at, You've got to look at a number of factors driving not only the price but also the issue of fairness. I mean, I paid seventeen thousand dollars for an airline ticket one time. I didn't think that was fair. I paid it because a client said that I had to get to Australia, and um, you know, and I when I, I you know I was I was just aghast at the price of this thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, they said, well, if it's busy here, and um, you know, we expect we need to need you down here, so we'll pay it. And you know, you had two effects taking the you had the fairness effect, and you um, also had what we call the consultant effect. That is the shared cost effect. Somebody else is paying it. So mm-hmm. there are, are a variety of things that influence your perception of uh, uh, pricing, and fairness is really only one of them. And you know, I'm sure in some you know, if you go to I mean, this, it, this gets back to one of the most important things I ever learned about pricing. It's not the price you charge. It's how people feel about the price they have to pay. 
And I go back to a story. Um, I, I probably got this story from Ron's first book because I've read all of his, and I, I just love the the writing that he does. And um, whoever wrote this story told a story about um, Ernest and Julio Gallo when they started the wine business. Um, one of the brothers went out to Macy's, and this was, you know, probably 60, 70 years ago. Uh, the brother went out to Macy's, and um, he, you know, showed a bri- uh, the, the Macy's wine buyer two glasses of wine. One was a $5 bottle, and the other one was a $10 bottle. And um, the buyer, you know, sampled the two wines and, you know, swirled them in his mouth and decided that the $10 bottle was a far superior wine and bought the $10 bottle. And that, first of all, started the Gallo wineries. But, you know, what the buyer didn't know is he used the same bottle for both glasses. Right. <laughs> and, you know, and I think psych- psychologically there are complex mechanisms that drive the decision process. Fairness is only one of them. Right. No, and and with that, we totally agree. I mean, Ron, Ron and I are big fans of some of the behavioral econo- economists, such as Dan Ariely. I don't know if yep. you've, you've studied yep. some of his stuff and yep. uh, the, the, that framing effect. I just think it's so much smarter to frame it in terms of a value framing than a cost framing because it, to me as a consumer, I don't really care much for – for the what, what the cost structure is of the people that I'm I'm buying from, right? Well, um, we had an interesting discussion with an editor at uh, Fortune magazine a few years ago, and um, his position was that you should not use cost-based justifications because you shouldn't use cost-based pricing. And um, I had I had a you know probably a two-year discussion with him before we finally realized what I was saying. Probably had to do with my Boston accent. And, uh, you know, it, 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 there's nothing wrong with using cost as a basis for um, uh, changing your prices. Here's the problem. Live by the sword, die by the sword. If you're using cost, you know, rising costs as a, as a, a method of um, justifying increased prices, then if your costs are going down, smart customers, especially in a B2B environment, are going to expect prices to decrease when the costs are going down. Right. Right. Good point. Reed, one of my favorite mantras of yours is innovate for growth, price for profit. And I say this to audiences and they kind of give you that cock RCA dog look. Oh, yeah. You know, and it, can, can you explain <clears throat> maybe in a little bit more detail what you mean by that? Yeah, that was one of, you know, I, every so often I get an epiphany. And that was <laughs> when we were writing the Pricing with Confidence book, that was one of the epiphanies. And I, I think I look at a lot of companies. The, the fact is that most companies are in mature markets. And in a mature market, using price as a method of growing is a very poor strategy because the markets are mature, customers are smart, and you usually are going to start price wars when you try to discount to increase revenue. It's inelastic by definition, which is the wrong thing to do. And And so... In, in, coming, in, in trying to come up with, when we did that book, we're trying to come up with a very simple way for people to think about their business. And we wanted to get them to recognize that if you're trying to grow the business, discounting only works in one phase of the life cycle, and that's the, the growth phase of the life cycle. Most of us are in mature phases of life cycle. So if you want to grow the business, the only way 
from both a theoretical and a practical perspective is to innovate, come up with new services, come up with um, you know new products, come up with new ways of doing things. You know, use the internet as a uh, as a method of, um, of of promotion. And it it it, it really, we think when uh, Mark Burton and I wrote that book, we think it really captured the way people needed to think about running a business, big and right. small. And, and, you know, it brings up another interesting point, and I, I know you run into this all the time, and you even wrote about this in, in, the, in the first couple books, is the market share myth. Why does the market share myth persist, this idea that we've just got to grow the top line? It's, you know, revenue's vanity, but profit's sanity. And, and that's what I think encapsulates so well in your mantra of innovate for growth, but price for profit. But why do you think the market share myth is so endemic? Well, I mean, you've got to be careful here because you, it goes back to um, uh, the PIMS research um, done back in the 1960s. And the PIMS stands for Profit Impact of Market Strategy. And they did research that basically said if you have higher market share, your costs are going to be lower and your profits are going to be higher. And this, by the way, led to the Boss Consulting Group uh, portfolio planning grid. It led to the experience curve. But that's the basis for that research. And the, re- the research was a good piece of research, but it didn't look at one very important thing. It, it didn't look at the impact of chasing market share. It looked at the impact. Once you get it, you can be profitable. But if you, if you don't have it and you decide to pursue it, and everybody else is decide, deciding to pursue it, all you end up with is a uh, price war that, that, that devastates both the revenue and the profits in an industry, let alone the individual company. And, you know, it's you know, in the 70s, all these uh, strategic um, ideas were coming out, and those strategic ideas, while conceptually terrific, I think a lot of managers not understanding them tend to use them. It's like price elasticity in markets. You know, we're going to drop our price. The market's elastic. We're going to get more revenue, and then a competitor matches that price, and um, uh, you know you're off to the races with a price war. And you know, it's price competition based you know based on most things, especially pursuit of market share is a fool's game. There's only one winner: the lowest cost supplier. And even right. they lose profitability. So, right, on the same right. Page. And and market share is kind of a, co- a, a, a a result, right? It's not necessarily a cause of profitability. It's it's kind of, it's more of a result. Well, but yes, and um, um, I I don't think I say that market share is a result of profitability. I think market share is a result of success in the marketplace, and success in the marketplace comes from customer satisfaction in both a B two B and B two C environment. Right. And, um, you know, discounting has, has little to nothing to do with that. I mean, and right. the, the amazing thing is, we've in, in the, as you know, in the past couple of years, I've been doing a lot of work internationally. And um, I remember going over to Japan in uh, 1990, and, you know, they, you know in, in a lot of industries in the U.S., they were learning the fallacy of that. You go over to Japan in the 1990s, it was, you know, they were still beating that drum. And, um, you know, the only companies that ended up making a lot of money were the, uh, the guys like Sony that were innovating rather than discounting. Right, or Toyota, right, yeah. which did the same thing. 
<laughs> Bad ideas die hard. Yeah. Uh, well, folks, <laughs> Reed, we have to take a break. And when we come back, we, we do want to dive into your Pricing with Confidence book from 2008. And you, you lay out 10 rules in there. And I don't expect to go through them all. But we want to maybe hit some of the highlights with you. In the meantime, folks, you can contact Ed or myself at TSOE at Verisage.com. You can follow our show live on Twitter, hashtag TSOE. And now we want to take a listen to our sponsor, Azamba. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. What if you could close more business with less effort and do it faster? What could your people accomplish if they had their own personal assistant keeping track of meetings and reminding them of follow-ups? What would it mean to have a perfect view of what your team and your prospects and your customers are doing? What if you could run your business from anywhere? You can have it all. Visit www.azamba.com forward slash soul today to find out how. That's azamba, A-Z-A-M-B-A dot com forward slash soul. Game-changing technologies and strategies are transformational, exciting, and disruptive for a reason. They shake up your status quo. They get you thinking about new ways to scale, compete, and grow. They move you in amazing new directions. You're invited to take your coffee break with Game Changers on Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time for our special series on today's top HR trends. Learn how you can become the savvy HR innovator who takes your company across the finish line as you look ahead to the future of work. HR Trends with Game Changers, presented by SAP on the Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, we're back on The Soul of Enterprise. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker. And with us today again is Reed Holden, uh, author of one of my favorite books, Pricing with Confidence. I've got it in my hand here. been obviously looking at it the last couple of days to get prepared for this interview. Um, Reed, I'm going to ask you a little bit of an unfair question because we did spring this on you uh, just, just a little bit. But um, we have been doing some work with a thing called the Stan She Smile Curve. And for those of you out, out there, it's S-H-I-H. You can uh, take a look at it. And basically, the, the, the idea is, is pretty intuitive. It's like over the course of time, so we, we have that time on the x-axis, and then value add on the y that uh, some kind of, let's say, of a manufactured products, the real value to the customer is at the extreme ends. For example, uh, the concept R&D and branding and design are more valuable to the customer than, say, the actual manufacturing. And then the curve kind of swings back up, and marketing and aftermarket service is, is where the value is. And the example that I'll give, of course, is, say, the, the, um, an iPhone, Right. It's and this is where Apple is brilliant. It's designed in Cupertino, California, and then assembled in China. And if you read the back of your phone, that that's exactly what it will say. 
And the manufacturing component is, quote, the low value um, because it's only really assembled and $5 remains in China, whereas the concept makes the money. And then, of course, the aftermarket service um, here. The challenge that we see, Reed, from a price perspective, and this is a a long-winded way of setting this up, but is that oftentimes professional firms – um, get, ha, get into this particular place where their pricing is really a frown, right? That the majority of their pricing that they're sending out to people comes during the making the sausage, if you will, um, which, which is when it's the least valuable to the actual consumer of that, you know, the the the, the customer of the professional service firm, and, and it, it's really out of whack. Right, so the the price doesn't match the value chain, and it causes a lot of consternation. And I thought I, I really should bring this up with you because this might be something you could, you can help potentially solve for us. Well, I mean, first of all, you did spring it on me, and I am looking at it now. Um, uh, you said professional service firms. I assume you mean um, uh, professional firms because professional yeah. service firms, you know, the manufacturing is actually going out and doing the work. And I would argue that for a professional services firm, um, uh, the ma- making of the sausage, so to speak, is perhaps the most important thing. Um, I, if if I if I look at this, I'm not sure I agree that marketing is more valuable than distribution, though in today's uh, Internet-based ordering, we've taken location out of any anything. You can, you know, you want to buy something in China, you just get on the Internet and you can find it. Uh, I totally agree that two of the most important areas are concept development and research and development and getting that done is, and the Apple example is a good one, and the importance of... Um, uh, sales and after-sales service and support as being the thing that can really differentiate um, high-value, uh, excuse me, commodity-type products and services. And I absolutely agree that most manufacturing companies, I'm going to expand that, most companies don't understand um, how their customers really get value out of uh, their products and services. And the ones that do tend to do ex- much better than the ones that don't. Hmm. Excellent. Reed, in Pricing with Confidence that you published in 2008 and co-authored with uh, Mark Burton, and I was privileged to read this in manuscript form and, yep. and uh, make some comments on it and just get an early glance at it, which was really exciting. But you lay out 10 rules, and I don't want to go through all of them, but the first one really strikes me. You say replace the discounting habit with a little arrogance, <laughs> and, and and Ed and I just did a program on on self esteem, self respect, call, call it whatever you want, but this idea that you know we find that in the business community there there does seem to be a lack of self esteem and people don't really want to charge what they're what they're worth, and and that's why I loved about your first rule. Well, and it was interesting when we um, we we had written a, a big technical book and, and decided that it wasn't very market acceptable. And you know about that because you were on my uh, our kitchen cabinet when we did that. And we recognized that we had to simplify things, and we had to come up with with statements that people would understand. In most organizations, discounting has become the crack cocaine of management. 
And if you, you know, you get your numbers, you discount. And there are cultures of discounting that is encouraged by customers that want to get lower prices. And, you know, we, we, we recognize that a couple of things. First of all, if you can't, if you can't somewhere give up discounting in your organization, all the investment in software and tools and market research and sales training, it's wasted because it's going to come, you're going to discount each and every time. We see, we see companies even today that have spent million dollars on big data analysis and come up with these great segmentation schemes and great value messaging for customers. And, you know, at the last minute, they beat the sales guys up and they're going to close that business at whatever discount you want. And, you know, so... Um, the the first thing is that, that we saw back then and still see is that you know discounting you know, discounting has become endemic in business today. People wring their hands. They talk about how tough their business is, and um, they you know they don't think they can get out of it. And the second issue is this issue of a little bit of arrogance. And we spend a lot of time talking about that word. And we specifically, Ed, you know, as the, as the wordsmith, we stayed away from the word hubris, which is dangerous arrogance. But you right. go in and you talk to a salesperson at a company, any company, and ask them how they feel about their product and service that they have to sell. And most of them are going to tell you they feel terrible about it. Mm-hmm. And you know, you get a, you, it, it, in order for salespeople to be successful, in order for them to be able to sell value, as we spoke earlier, they're going to feel good about who they are and what they do. And the customers aren't going to make them feel good about it because of the of the games they play. And you know that's got to come from inside the organization. It's got to come from the leadership of the organization. Um, you know, when we wrote that book, as you know, we talked about a, a guy by the name of Matt Zulik, who was the CEO of a of a Red Hat. And, um, you know, he, he got a call one time because he, he, they weren't making their numbers that quarter. And, you know, he got, they gave him a hard time because he could have discounted. He said, why would I want to start discounting? You know, we, we, we do great stuff for our clients. We, you know, provide great services. If I start discounting, we're never going to kick it up, stop it. You know, we, we're going to... We're going to sell on the value, and we're going to keep doing that. And the company turned out to be very successful. Right, right. It, it, it's like you're, you're your own first sale. You have to kind of convince yourself and understand your own worth before you can convince a customer. Oh, absolutely. And I, as a point, I believe that if, if I look at pricing as a field of theory, I think this is, the, most, this is the, the biggest future thing that we have to deal with in pricing, getting Salespeople getting managers, getting executives to feel good about the fact that they're selling something. When a customer says, "Oh, you know, your stuff is is no good," they they at least can can engage in a conversation of telling the customer why it is good. Right, right. Uh, great point. Your third rule is where you lay out the three simple pricing strategies: the skim, neutral, and penetration. Could mm-hmm. you give us a quick overview of each one of those and maybe where it's appropriate to use each one? Well, I can answer the first half in about 30 seconds. The second <laughs> half took me a chapter and a half to crane up. <laughs> so, um, um, yeah, I mean, it, 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 there has been a lot of uh, things written about pricing strategy. I believe that, there, you know, cost base is not a strategy. Meet the market is not a strategy. They're very tactical, responsive to a limited uh, amount of information. 
there are only three pricing strategies, really, that are strat- strategic. That is, they're looking at multiple areas. They're looking at uh, uh, customer adoption. They're looking at uh, competitive intensity. They're looking at um, um, customer growth and market growth. And those three strategies are, um, um, uh, first is um, um, uh, penetration pricing, which is low pricing to achieve market share that is um, only appropriate uh, for all intents and purposes unless there's been a dramatic technology change that, that reduces cost or in the high growth phase of the market. The skim is pricing high relative to competition or existing solutions, and some level of skim um, uh, pricing is appropriate throughout the product life cycle, and it is especially appropriate in the introductory phase of the life cycle when um, the penetration has only reached maybe uh, 10 or 11%, and it's appropriate because the customers that are going to buy it at first um, are, are going to buy it for the value. The customers that are going to buy based on price are not going to be the early adopters. Um, and then neutral pricing says that we don't use price as a competitive weapon. We price very close to competitors, and that's uh, quite appropriate in the mature phase and the declining phase of a life cycle. I guess we, I did that it, in about a minute and a half, didn't I? Th- no, I was excellent. Wow, I'm, I'm really <laughs> impressed. I know how complex this topic is. It was a totally unfair question. But what are some examples of companies that are, would be well-known that use neutral pricing? Uh, colleges and universities use uh, tend to use neutral pricing. Um, they have price positioning. You know, in the Ivy Leagues, they are all you know high price. The state universities tend to be um, right, right around the same price. Um, uh, a lot of the uh, uh, PC companies, with the exception of Apple, are using neutral pricing now. That's one of the reasons that um, IBM got and HP is getting out of that business because there's not an opportunity to make um, um, a lot of money with the uh, low-cost manufacturing coming out of China. So those would be two examples. Would you say Toyota? Pardon me? Would you say Toyota uses neutral pricing? No, I think, um, well... Now you, now you have to go back and, 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 and look at um, uh, value of Toyota, and I think uh, four years ago I would have said, no, they tend to um, um, uh, skim price just a little bit. Um, I think that since Toyota uh, ran into the quality problems that they've struggled a little bit, and they're now adopting more of a neutral pricing strategy, Okay. Okay. Yep. It makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, if you were to do a, a Google on pricing strategy in Toyota, my guess is they'd say it's neutral. One question we get from professional firms read a lot is, can you use all three? Sure. You should be using, you know, you, you mean, I mean, let me pull back that answer. It all depends on your footprint in the marketplace. If if you're in an in an industry if you're a, an industry that you know has three or four competitors, um, not necessarily there's going to be a big competitor, there's going to be a small competitor, there might be a couple in between. If you're a professional services firm that has a small percent of the market, um, uh, I don't think you should be using all three. You should un- have an understanding of what the what the value positioning of your organization is and price price to that organization, uh, price to that position. You know, you look at uh, professional services, um, you know, there's a price war, a global price war going on in accounting right now, and, you know, the the four main companies are beating themselves back to the Stone Ages, and while that's happening, you've got the 
two remaining uh, premier strategy consulting firms that you know are not doing a lot of um, competitive pricing. They're keeping their rates at a reasonable, you know, high level, you know, for us poor folks, but a reasonable level for the multi-billion dollar companies that are using their services and getting multi-billion dollars in benefit. And, um, you know, one of the things that I know at least one of those organizations is doing is uh, getting involved in risk sharing. You know, I heard about a, uh, a, you know, pretty good-sized project that went out, and they actually, um, this particular um, uh, consulting company, I won't say which one it was because it was confidential information, ended up pricing twice what the other co- companies were doing. They got the business because they said, hey, listen, we'll put, you know, we'll, we'll guarantee you that you'll get um, a good result, and they got a good rate, the, cus- the client got a good result, and, you know, it's a reasonable way to do it. Right, right. There's no doubt in my mind that the strategy consultants know more about pricing than the accountants do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to be careful because I'm on contract with a, at least one of those accounting firms, and I would have to agree with that. <laughs> well, apparently we've got a Twitter question, right, Ed? That we, we do, yes. And well, let's, let's plan to ask that after this next break. We do have one more break that we're up against right now, so we're going to go do this. And it's uh, for my folks, it's Sage. So let's hear from Sage Software. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Four new employees. A 20% increase in revenue. Being one of the 9 million women business owners in the U.S. These are your proudest numbers, your landmarks of growth and success. Sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights. Believe in your numbers. See what Sage can do for your business. Visit believeinyournumbers.com today. What do business and sports have in common? Both are based on competition, and the goal of each is the same, to win. If you're in business, you need an edge over your competitors. You need to innovate and improve. You need to make adjustments to stay ahead of your competition. Tune in to The Business Locker Room with Kelly Riggs. Get the playbook and the coaching you need to improve your business performance. The Business Locker Room airs live every Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. are tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit verisage.com you may also tweet us at verisage that's v-e-r-a-s-a-g-e now back to the soul of enterprise well reed you're a popular guy we've got a question on twitter for you and uh it is this is offering unlimited technical support such as via email as part of a fixed price, not a good idea. Um, it is. It could be a very good idea. <laughs> <laughs> I love that answer. <laughs> he's hedging the, his bets. Here's the problem. I mean, I I believe that organizations need to learn to do a couple of things. They need to learn to understand the value of what they do. They need to price to that value, and they need to learn to negotiate better. And part of the negotiations is what we call a give-get. That's taking things away. And if if unlimited, you know, email-based support 
is part of their package, it's a great thing to have. But rather than discounting that high-value package, if a customer wants a discount, take that unlimited support away. And that's a very reasonable approach. Reed, we've only got about five minutes. And and again, we've talked about your book, Pricing with Confidence, uh, written in 2008. And folks, we're highly recommended. We will definitely post links to this and to Reed's uh, company on our show notes. And the second, the other book that you wrote recently, Reed, is Negotiating with Backbone, Eight Strategies to Defend Your Price and Value. And I think that was published in 2012. And it's an excellent book because what I really liked about it is you start to talk about the, the whole procurement and how procurement is coming into the, the buying cycle and how that's affecting pricing. Um, why did you write that particular book at, that, at this particular time? Uh, uh, the reason we wrote the book is we we developed the model. Uh, we had a, uh, for a particular client, global um, client, and uh, part of the uh, of putting the model together was that we maintained ownership of it, and uh, we recognized that we had a solution that the sales books didn't have. Right. Because you talk about the procurement buzzsaw, yeah. and, and w- one of the lines in the book that I just really laughed out loud at is you said that 80% of procurement managers give the other 20% a bad name. Because <laughs> I have to say, at least in the professional sector, I've ran across procurement people who absolutely get it. I mean, they, they understand value, and they understand the cheapest price is usually not that. Yeah. Uh, but your but your comment because I think you work with a broader sphere of companies, uh, it really made me laugh. Do you do you think procurement's getting it? No. Um, um, I mean, first of all, let me back up. I used to be in procurement. I'm a member of the Institute of Supply Management and have taken their advanced training courses. Mm. Um, and I did that in preparation for writing the book. Um, uh, if you there was a, a recent um, uh, study by your old firm KPMG. That, um, that, that says the procurement people have a bad understanding of risk and the implication of risk in their purchasing approaches. And um, I, I think what happens to, what, what's happened to a lot of procurement, and, and I have procurement people, I'm, I have as friends, I, you know, I used to be in procurement, and you know, I, I think that there are a fair number of procurement people, but I've also noticed that there, is, there, there are a high percentage of procurement people who believe that they can bend the truth with their suppliers. And um, um, uh, it's, you know, if you're dealing, I won't get into the legal aspects of it, but I believe if you bend the truth, you are violating one of the core principles of the Institute of Supply Management, which is be open and honest with people. And I pointed that out during my training, and they didn't like that I pointed that out. I, I think that procurement people have learned that if they bend the truth and manipulate the situation, they get high value products and services for a discount, and that's why they do it. And, and, right. and if we we're, were in their shoes, we'd be doing the same darn thing. The problem is that salespeople and uh, selling companies have not learned how to deal with it, mm. which is you why know, we, that's why we wrote the book. And I do love how you bring in risk strategies uh, into, in that book, Negotiating with Backbone. Yep. You talk about making sure that you communicate the risk aspect, because I think that's a significant part of the buying decision that the customer should be made aware of. Just a, a broad question, Reed, on the whole pricing, because I've watched the pricing community, you know, PPS, 
a professional pricing society grow and I've seen more and more pricing people being employed. Even now in law firms, it's not uncommon to see a director of pricing. Do you think pricing someday might become a profession like accountants and lawyers? I think it's one now. I mean, I, I think that uh, with the help of the professional pricing society, where we both tend to see each other, um, that there it, it is a profession. But I I do believe that it has a ways to go, because while we're learning, while professional prices are learning a lot of the current tactics, there are some core elements um, of those tactics. You, you know, you mentioned. Um, uh, Bob Cross's book in Revenue Management, a classic that I think should be on every pricing manager's bookshelf. Um, you know, Richard Thaler, um, uh, The Winner's Curse at the University of Chicago. Right. Uh, there, are some, there are some core understandings that I think that, that we're missing. I was, I was at a, a large international company, team of about 45 uh, professional pricers, and they didn't understand price elasticity. Mm, Which mm. is, a, you know, if you're going to be a pricer, you got to understand pricing elasticity. And that, that kind of stuff concerns me a, a great deal. Right. Reed, in the last minute or so that we have, are you working on any new books that you're willing to talk about? Um, I am a, a special projects guy and um, uh, working with a limited number of clients on this issue of uh, getting salespeople to feel better about who they are and what they do and um, uh, making that part of the organizational culture, and it would be the next um, generation of value, so to speak. Oh, I love it. I, I think that's such an important topic, that whole self-respect. There's nobility in being paid what you're worth, all of yep, that. Yep. Uh, that's a critical topic, so true. Well, Reed, this has just been excellent. We, we can't thank you enough for uh, spend, sharing your expertise with us and, and being on the show. We, we really admire your work, fans for a long time, as you know, and you, you're my absolute mentor. So I, I really, really thank you for being on today. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you both, um, Ed and Ron. Yes, thank you, Reed. All right, Ed, and thank you. And uh, I guess we will see you in about 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, feel free to visit us at verisage.com slash TSOE for more information on, on the show. We'll post show notes. We'll have all of Reed's links up there and all of his books as well. And uh, you can contact Ed or myself at TSOE at Verisage.com. Thank you for listening, folks.